。あけましておめでとうございます。あけましておめでとうございます。Happy New Year!I、uh, can't believe it's 2024.I read this thing, this meme that said, for those of you who are in surprise that it's 2024 already, is it even harder to process? That you're still grappling with what life was like in 2019, which is now five years ago. Stop it. Well, I just, I have a hard line between pre COVID and the world after it. So, yeah, 2019, when was that? Like 1950? I don't know. Do you know? No one knows at this point. So, if you have been a longtime listener of the podcast, first of all, thank you. You'll know that. Our sort of New Year's episodes are done a, a specific way. And if you are a new listener to the podcast, welcome. You're going to kick it off with our new year along with you. So we like to split this episode that we, one that we do every time at this time of year for the last four years into two parts. So we'll start with reflections and then we'll move to projections. That sounds so corporate, by the way. Like, where, where are our PowerPoint slides? Anyway, okay. But you'll want to listen so you don't miss how to stay involved in what's coming next for us, for the podcast, and hopefully with all of you. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your multi ethnic Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So, we built this podcast deeply exploring the history of identity and racism in our country, largely intentionally centered around the Black narrative, as, as really slavery and anti Black racism was the foundation upon which this country was built. Trust me, that is not fun to say. It is really not fun to grapple with, but we have always really felt that it's important to understand this in order to really understand where we are as a country today and then be able to draw threads from that history into understanding how forms of discrimination based on white supremacy have continued to impact so many other historically uncentered identities. And I think we should just, you know, say really explicitly that anti Blackness in the United States has not been solved, right? Still an ongoing, gigantic foundational problem of our nation. So, given what you just said, Sarah, we've finally spoken a lot more in this last quarter of our show. So, this last, you know, three months, which has been going since 2019, the show as a whole, but really the fall and early winter of 2023 has been a lot about our own Asian identities, our multi ethnic families, and the traditions who make us who we are. So, I just said the word tradition. So I'm curious, what are some of your New Year's traditions, ones that you love and honor? And I'm talking to the broad you, right? Like all of you out there. So if you can take a moment to reflect on that, because those are all part of our, our own identities. And while everyone's reflecting on their own, Sarah, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are some of ours or yours, you know, the ones that you and I have done over the years? Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing you are leaning into our Japanese identity there. One of the Philosophies I love about the Japanese New Year's tradition is that how you usher in the new year is setting the tone for how the rest of your year is going to go. So, there's a few things that in Japanese tradition you do to set yourself up for success. One is a deep cleaning, which personally, I'm definitely old now because I take great satisfaction in a good old deep clean. The rest of my family somehow makes themselves really scarce when I get started on this process. I mean, we're talking pulling out the fridge and vacuuming behind it. Like, love it. I'm excited as you're speaking. Yeah. That feels so good because you do a deep clean and you're ushering in a very clean, healthy new year. Another tradition that my kids love in particular, it's called Otoshidama. And it's this idea of your elders, 
presenting children with a little pouch of money. And I mean, we're talking when um, in Japanese tradition, they're in these little special, beautiful paper bag kind of things. And you present them with two hands. The kids receive them with two hands. They raise them. They, they give gratitude to their elders. So my, yeah, my kids love otoshidama. It comes from my mom. It's wonderful. And then you can't forget the food. I love this in particular because the whole idea is why don't you prep all this food so that you don't have to go nuts cooking for the first few days of the year. That is probably one of my least favorite things to do right now, aside from big special meals, is day-to-day cooking. So this idea of setting the tone for ease with which we receive nutrition, I'm all in for it. So I actually contact our local Japanese you know, grocery store that has osechi-ryori, like these pre-packaged sort of fermented, shelf-stabilized, but fresh-ish foods. And so I love it. That's my stuff. I think we share a lot of that, if I can speak for you on that too, yeah? Yes. I mean, I'm getting hungry just thinking about osechi, right? So I think for us also, family, you know, New Year's in Japanese tradition too is where family sort of comes back together, right? And I think for us, because our family is sort of spread out, part of that is going to family, which we typically do at the end of the year, which then sometimes Japanese New Year and other New Year traditions butt heads. And it's always interesting in a multi-ethnic family, like how those happen and how those exist. Because on December 31st, you know that you eat these long life noodles, right? To sort of go into the New Year with this long life because Japanese New Year is the same as Western New Year, right? January 1st is the start of the New Year. And sometimes I'm in places where you can't get those noodles in the same way. So you know what? Pho makes a great alternative I have discovered (laughs) through trial and error. But now I sometimes travel with Zenzai, like the red bean, you know, sort of dessert treat for New Year's and other things, mochi, right? Which is not just the mochi ice cream, but like actual mochi, like the sticky rice and all of those special foods. So I think similar to you, Sarah, a lot of my traditions around New Year's, it revolves around food, right? (laughs) Food and family and starting the year on the right foot. Speaking of starting the year, I feel like I know the answer. And for those of you who heard me ask me, Sasha, this question for our New Year's episode in 2020, I think you're going to understand her visceral reaction. But you know how a lot of people have a New Year's resolution or, hey, I don't do resolutions because I understand that most of those fade in the first three months. So I am even more elevated and do a intention and a word of the year. Okay, me, Sasha, if you had to pick a word of the year, an intention, something that you want to embody more of in 2024, what would it be? So I'm not playing your little game. Just, <laughs> I can't tell you what I actually want to say, but the backstory, because Sarah, the story that Sarah just told you is true, but the backstory to that backstory is also that I have never in my life before picked a word, an intention, anything like that is not me. I do not make New Year's resolutions. I don't set an intention. I don't have a word that comes to me, you know, in my dreams and is like, ah, this is it. Right. So I did it for 2020. And I think everyone knows what happened. And so I've taken that as a sign that never again in my life should I even attempt something like this. But maybe Sarah, you have better luck than me. So if you had to pick a a word of the, I can't even believe I'm saying this sentence, but if you had to pick a word of the year or an intention or, you know, something to like hold in 2024, do you happen to have that? You couldn't even keep your voice straight without laughing as you asked that question. (laughs) I mean, it was really hard, admittedly, real hard. I had to channel the word gentle, but I have no idea how that's going to come back to bite me in the butt this year. So we're just going to leave it at that. I'm not going to overanalyze it. 
But I feel like that is the energy that is coming to me in my ah moment that I had. I think along those lines, it is worth, especially for those of you who are new to the show, that we reintroduce ourselves, both within this platform, the role that we play, what the platform is, uh, and who we are outside of it and where we have grown this year. And so I'd like to say, hi, I'm Sarah. I am a daughter of a Japanese immigrant mom and a white father, grew up in the outskirts of New York and then lived in Tokyo and Hong Kong and, and sort of loved living in multicultural areas. I'm now married to a white Canadian man, and we have lived in places like Arizona, and now we live in Colorado, in Denver, very white areas for the last 15 years or so. My personal interests are really driven by what makes people thrive. I find people endlessly fascinating. I'm a trained life coach. I love positive psychology, and I'm also the mother to two pretty much teenage daughters at this stage. So there's a lot there. One of the things in the projects I do outside of Dear White Women is I MC the World Happiness Summit, which is super exciting. It's like this gathering of the leading practitioners and researchers in the realm of positive psychology. And I, right now in 2024, have been reflecting on our major life reset post-pandemic, You know, knowing what we know now about how our family is going to operate. Um, my husband had to prove himself as sort of junior guy in a new job this last year. He's reached his new level. We have this new lifestyle because he is a pilot, but now is going to be in the training center. So he's around more. So a lot more stability there. My kids have had five new diagnoses this year with a range of invisible disabilities. So I've been really grappling with what it means to be successful. How do I define success? What sort of parent do I want to be? What is our role in shaping these conversations and paving the way for a whole bunch of children? And I think along with that, oh my gosh, post-pandemic, it's like we're allowed to socialize again. I'm really excited about continuing to intentionally rebuild my community in real life here in Denver in a way that feels authentic and supporting and like freeing. Like I want to have pre-pandemic energy of just life is heavy enough. Let's build the people that lift us up and make us celebrate now that we have as a family the ground put under us. So I am, that's my life outside of the show. And I absolutely feel like the luckiest human in the world that you and I, Misasha, get to do this work together because there's no one else I could do this with. So I want to hear more about you. Oh, right back at you, first of all. So hi, I'm Misasha. I am the daughter of a Japanese immigrant father and a white mother. I grew up in Los Angeles and spent a bunch of time out of it in Boston and Cambridge in Tokyo with side projects in Hong Kong and Singapore, in law school in New York, and then made my way, my way back to California because you know what I hate? Winter. You know, I'm cold at 65. So let me just put that out there for all of you who have questions about how Sarah and I are different. Wouldn't live in Denver. So I live in the Bay Area now. And sort of when people ask where, top of Silicon Valley, I'm in a predominantly white community. I have two boys who are Black, Japanese, and white, a Black husband. And my boys are now officially tweens, not teenagers yet, although one I'm sure thinks he is. Besides the podcast, I am an attorney. So I do a lot of pro bono work, no private practice now for me, but pro bono work in election protection, voter rights, redistricting. Uh, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I also really enjoy speaking with children 
So I have been able and been fortunate enough to do more work speaking with children, speaking with parents on issues of racial and social justice. So that has been sort of what I do on the side. In terms of this past year, Sarah, you did such a good job with this. I don't have as many life changes. Like my kids are still black. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start there. You know, my oldest went to middle school, which was a big shift for the family and really expanded his horizons, but also our family's horizons as well. And I think that has also caused me to really take a look at blackness in school. And when you are the only black kid in your school, let's say, or your class. What does that mean for identity? And so that's something that I think I will continue to focus on in 2024. I think the more that I think about life and the importance of life, and we had some things that happened in the last quarter of the year that really made me think about how fleeting life is or health is or or those sorts of things. I think similar to you, Sarah, about local communities and the importance of local communities and the importance of finding your people in those local communities. Because, you know, we have so many different communities that we intersect in. And who are your people in those communities? Because sometimes communities may feel very overwhelming until you find those people. So I'm really dedicating 2024 to not only finding more of those people, but really cultivating the relationships that I already have in that community. For the people who I am really slow to text back, I'm sorry, I'm working on it. That's also something I'm working on in 2024. Read the text, respond immediately. Okay. So that's, that is my verbal promise to you all. I just want to say she committed to something in 2024. So does that count as part of your intention? I'm just saying, I'm just saying there's, okay. All right. I was just curious. You yeah, know, I'm not picking a word to describe my <laughs> okay. newfound ability to text better. So, Okay, fine. For those, we get this question a lot. How do you two know each other? And we have known each other for over 26 years. Do you want to tell the story? You know, I think that part of growing up in multi-ethnic families, right, in the time that we did is that you don't know a lot of other people who are, at least I didn't, right? I think that's true for you, Sarah, who were Japanese and white or, you know, biracial or multi-ethnic besides those who are immediately related to you. So when we both had gone to Harvard to have a club that was solely devoted to the half Asian people's association was like a, an eye opening moment. Cause it was more than just, you know, me and my brother who were half Asian or biracial or multi-ethnic. And so Sarah and I happened to attend the same meeting of this club where the question was posed HAPA, which is, you know, the acronym, but also a, a Hawaiian term for people who are half. Are we half a person or are we double a person? And I think there were a handful of us who thought, you know, that's what kind of question is that? And that's probably not the right question to be framing our identities and, you know, got up and and left the room. And, you know, Sarah and I met walking out, which is, I think, only fitting that we met walking out of a meeting in which identity was being discussed and framed in a way that we didn't particularly agree with to fast forward to, you know, 26 Plus years later, where we get to talk about identity pretty much all day long, which is is so great. And I, I think such a privilege to be able to use all of what we know and all of what we live to expand this vision for others. I hope I did that justice. Thank you for sharing. You did great. I loved it. Speaking of doing, you know, what we do, I would love to share a few stats because we have had an incredible year in 2023. Our listenership 
despite, I think, podcasts slowing down all over the place, we've had over 88,000 downloads in 2023 alone, bringing us well over 368,000 downloads of all time. That is all due to you, our listeners, continuing to listen, continuing to share episodes. And so for that, we thank you. We would not be here without you. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's keep it up in 2024. Mm, amazing. I It kind of gives me chills hearing those numbers because remember when we thought it was just going to be like five people who listened, all of whom were related to us. So always amazing to me. So I wanted to just echo your thanks. And I think when we think about this year, we had some big themes. You know, we talked about the multi-ethnic arc that we did in the last quarter of the year, but we really started the year and throughout the spring, really breaking down politics all the way to the local level, because it's important for us. And I think especially heading into 2024, being in 2024, where the focus is on a national stage, right? But it's not just the presidential elections that matter, but a lot in between, because think about what Sarah, you and I just talked about our local communities and the power of the local communities, right? Because that group, the mayor, the school boards, you know, so many other things, the city council, they handle the regulations and the day-to-day things that impact your daily life. So I know that civics might prompt a huge eye roll from people, but if you have questions or if you know you forgot seventh grade, go back and listen to as we think about what's coming down the pike this year. The other thing I think we are very excited about is our speaking gigs. We had 10 well-paid gigs in 2023, which was basically one a month for the year since we took the summer off. We took two whole months off to be present with our children. And so I want to thank all those who connected us and invited us to their spaces. We really, really enjoyed them both in live and virtually. And we're booking now for 2024. So check out our website for our speaker sheet so you can see what we're talking about. I mean, there are things ranging from parenting multi-ethnic families to being Asian and debunking the model minority myth. Misasha gives a killer breakdown of intersectionality. We also obviously talk about the law, history, and psychology behind DEI, which is to say like the basics of anti-racism, all the way to really digging into what true allyship looks and feels like. And again, if you've listened to our show, you know that we do all of this in a very heart-centered and very, very practical, action-oriented way. I also want to give us kudos to shifting our release schedule to accommodate these speaking gigs and making room for this upcoming newsletter momentum. So if you're listening, sign up for our new email list at the bottom of our website, dearwhitewomen.com, so you see both what has happened and what is coming up, which I think is a perfect way for us to transition into what's next, 2024, election year. You want to take it away? This is a big year. Yeah. And, you know, as we said in a previous episode, we said 2020 was going to be the most impactful elections in our time. Wrong, I think. I think we can say that now. 2024 is going to be. And I think that there is a level of apathy that comes around elections. I was just reading a piece, I think, in the New York Times that was talking about because of our electoral college, there is a very small amount of Americans who actually move the needle when it comes to presidential elections. But the thing that is important to remember, if you're not in one of those seven states that are highly targeted by presidential candidates, is how do we move the needle, period, right? Because even if you're not in one of those seven states, you might have influence over one of those individuals in ways that you don't even know how. I was going to say, like, I think it's super important. What you're saying is that you may have this power that you don't know, and you may have in the past chosen to stay silent, 
but we don't have the luxury of being silent anymore. Of all years that we have spoken up and done this show, this is the year where you have to dig deep and get uncomfortable and hold the boundaries and speak up. And I know you're going to get into why for sure, but we hope you listen to this through a lens of not what other people are going to do, but rather what am I going to do about this? Yes. I think we have no room for apathy right now. Like if we just Everyone has a vested interest in the future of their country, even on a very individual level, right? So that is why we need to be having discussions because, and you know, we love a good poll here on Dear White Women. According to an NBC News poll released in November, 34% of GOP voters consider themselves more supporters of Trump than supporters of the Republican Party. And in a December 7th poll, 62% of Republican voters have a favorable opinion of Trump. And this is according to 538. And I want to just pause there for a second, because that is shocking, for lack of a better word, but that you have a party that is willing, a third of a party that is willing to stand behind one candidate, you know, over party, because that looks a lot like authoritarianism. And I think we are seeing this trend. Well, I know we are seeing this trend in other elections that are happening now in conflict around the globe. And so I don't think we can discount that happening in the United States, especially as a country that purports to love some forms of democracy, right? So because Trump's solid political base, right, which is, like I said, sort of between 30 and 40% of Republican primary voters is making him the front runner, right, for the Republican nomination. And like, this is when I'm like, are we in a parallel universe? Because this dominance comes after four, that is one, two, three, four indictments in 2023, fallout from the Capitol riot and more. And we can't gloss over the fact that this man has been indicted four times, is basically barred from doing business in New York, led a political coup, and we are still okay with as in his own words, he, on day one of his like his time in office, he is going to be a dictator. Like he is telling us who he is. We have to believe him. So again, are we okay with this? Because, you know, apparently we are. Uh, there's a new Wall Street Journal poll that was released on December 9th. And in that poll, Biden lags behind Trump by four percentage points. 47 to 43% on a hypothetical ballot with only those two candidates. And I think we also need to deal with the reality that there, it may not just be those two candidates. And if that's the case, Trump's lead expands to six points, 37 to 31%, when five potential third party and independent candidates are added to the mix. Because those candidates take a combined 17% support, with Democrat-turned-independent Robert F. Kennedy Jr. drawing the most at 8%. And seriously, like as I'm even saying these things, it feels like an alternate universe that this is what, if we had the election today, this is what's likely to happen. And I'd love to interject on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because I just listened to a, a talk here in Denver. They're bringing amazing speakers into town, and Dr. Anthony Fauci was here, and he this is a very apolitical speaker series. Fauci has served under many like presidents and has been in the government a long time. And he was asked to meet with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who would not believe Fauci on what happened with COVID. Like factual scientific research, Fauci shared that he eventually had to stop talking to this candidate because he there was no belief in facts. 
And so if you're questioning Robert F. Kennedy Jr., but you love Dr. Fauci, I just want to share that I heard it out of his mouth that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. does not believe in facts around some of these things. So just know that. I think that's really important. I'm super glad you shared that because, you know, we love facts and science on the podcast because those are the things we can actually hold on to, right? Like there is a lot of subjective reasoning that happens, right? There is a lot of opinion. And I don't think we can discount the fact of facts, right? Of facts, of truth, of scientifically proven things. And I want to also share another meme. I feel like I'm a social media like nut right now with the way I'm quoting social media memes. But I saw this this morning that really resonated because my kids are in school. And it said, back in high school, if you didn't believe in science or in history, that was called failing. And you're like, yeah, actually, we were all taught this. You all know we were all like, could you imagine if your children were like, <laughs> no, this chemical reaction, that's not what really happened. You would fail. So why are we accepting this as adults? I think that's a great point. Speaking of things that are incorrect, we also cannot look away. So we're recording this in December, but you know, there is day by day news that is coming out around Trump's claiming immunity from prosecution on the basis that, you know, the Constitution doesn't allow for this. And I would just like to note that also in high school, you learned a lot about the Constitution. And that is exactly the thing the Constitution was written to prevent, right? We formed, if you're going back to U.S. history, right, the Constitution was written to prevent kings, right? It was rented to prevent an absolute monarchy, I would argue written to prevent a dictator too. But, you know, I think that we cannot be okay with someone weaponizing the Constitution to just do what he wants to do, because that is actually, again, he's telling us what he's going to do. And this is what is going to happen in a Trump presidency if he gets elected in 2024. And P.S., that works for no one, right? Because, like, let's think about monarchies and dictatorships over time, like, really does not care about anyone except staying in power. And I think that is incredibly dangerous, especially in a second term presidency where unless you change the constitution, you're not getting elected again, right? So I think the whole point of our talking about this right now is that in 2024, we cannot look away. Like, sure, the news is a dumpster fire, right? But with less and less Americans enthusiastic about voting, And I want to be careful not to overstate this because I think that people hear things like this and are like, okay, well, then there's nothing I can do. There is something we can do, but we have to be in this fight right now for democracy, right? Because we may be losing our last chance to really hold on to some of those tenets if we look at the purest meaning of democracy and And indeed, if we're going to argue what America was founded on, then that, right? So we've really got to get loud about things that matter to us. And we're going to be talking about a lot of these topics in 2024. So please stay tuned. I am so glad you brought the fire because you can feel it and hear it. And I hope people take that with them. Can you talk a little bit more about what you are doing in terms of volunteering for elections? Because yes, I am not a lawyer, but I do know that I can vote and I do know that I can interrupt conversations that I hear and hold the line and share facts with people in real life. But there is more that certain specialties can do. And I know as lawyers, you have and and, and other people, we can do more than sort of the basics as well. What are some options? Well, I think poll monitoring, right? This is 
you do not need to be a lawyer to be a poll monitor. And I think the importance about poll monitors is that we know that voter intimidation happens, right? And poll monitors and people who can be in those roles and A, help people vote, right? Because we also have challenges to voting rights in so many states, right? So even giving people the ability to vote is crucial in this in this election, right? But poll monitors also being able to report voter intimidation because every state has very specific voter intimidation laws. It's really important that you know your own states, right? Because for example, in California, I believe you have to be a hundred feet away from a polling place to even have a partisan sign, right? So, and this is a tactic in elections to scare people off from voting at the polls, right? So because vote by mail has its own challenges and so people prefer to vote in person and the people who don't want democracy to win are going to be actively challenging it. They did in 2020. They're going to do it again. So that is your role as a non-lawyer and also letter writing. Like I think that people think like, oh, this is really easy. You know, this isn't as active as I want to be. This targets voters in states where they may need to have this explained to them, their ability to vote and how they can do this and reach out to them and remind them of this right to vote. Like we need to be writing letters. We need to be sending postcards. We need to be doing text banks. These are all things that you do not need a law degree to do. Some things that you do need a law degree to do sometimes are being election monitors. And that is when I have sat in a firehouse in Clark County in 2008, and that's in Nevada, and was the Democratic poll monitor or poll watcher, right? And that meant that you had a Republican poll watcher there too. And we were just trying to make sure that there were not going to be partisan challenges to the electoral process, right? And we had to have both parties represented because in case of some challenge, right, we didn't, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. And I have to say that I had some amazing conversations with our Republican poll watcher there, which reminded me that it is so easy to make things into a binary here. And it really is not a binary along party lines. It cannot be a binary among something as simple as where you live. It's got to be like, are you fighting for democracy or are you not? And I think that might be the binary, right? But in these conversations, in Sarah, as you were talking about making this local, right? We can see the humanity in others in our community and we can change minds and hearts, right? That way. And I think something else that as a lawyer I've been able to do is volunteer. For example, I do this through California's Democratic National Committee and we provide election day support or we provide you know, prior to election support for when the vote by mail is open to alert people of voter intimidation issues to handle hotline because there are hotlines that you can call, right, to if you have questions about voting. We man those hotlines. We handle follow-up challenges to those things. So I think those are a lot of ways in which lawyers can get involved. And if you're a lawyer and you want to find out more, please email us and I can provide you some more information. Love all of that. Thank you so much. You know, you've heard a lot about the voting angle and the let's fight for democracy angle. Like I said earlier, we speak about a whole host of things, right? This is not just our our shtick. We absolutely think there are so many layers and forces at play that shape the day-to-day of our families, our workplace, our schools, our ability to purchase things. Like there is so much that we can discuss together so that you can see how forces of oppression are interconnected and what you can do to make a difference. So like I said, we're booking for 2024 speaking gigs. 
please reach out to us on our website, dearwhitewomen.com. And also for the first time ever, we're giving you input on what you want to hear this year. So send us an email with your ideas of things you want us to cover at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list.